Church Audio Podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have part five, uh, part six in our series, Road to Recovery. Today's message is entitled Stewardship. And we're looking at how much of our journey is the grace of God, how much of it involves our own efforts. A question that has been debated through the ages, but I think you'll find this helpful in your own personal journey. Got a lot of things coming up, a relationship course that we just opened up registration for, and you can find more info about that on our site and on our Facebook page, uh, and many other things. So thanks for listening. Let's head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. we are going to do with the deep philosophical issue of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Or theologically speaking, did Adam have a belly button? (laughs) Just think about that just for a minute. Some of you, it will hit you here in a minute. (laughs) Now, today we're going to talk about the the, the issue, you can find evidence of this issue in the early church and the scriptures in the New Testament, and it's certainly come to the forefront of the Christian conversation uh, at various times throughout church history. How much of our faith journey is God, is grace, and how much of it is up to us? You ever thought about that before? You know, how much of this thing is God and how much of this thing is me? Uh, when we look at, at church history, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, about 500 years ago, 517, he launched the, the Protestant Reformation. Now, Luther was a tortured soul. He grew up just uh, feeling like he had to perform for God to get God to accept him. And he even was so serious about God that he became a monk. And not just any old monk, he became a monk that, that, that participated in uh, self-flagellation, which is basically where you beat yourself with a, with a whip or a belt. Because he thought that that would make God happy. If, if I can just, you know, punish myself, then, then God will accept me. He'll approve of me. But Luther got to a point in his journey where he just realized, like, what can you give the guy who owns everything? <laughs> you know, like, at what point are you going to be able to suffer enough to, to make the God who owns everything uh, accept you? And one day he was reading... Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9, and I believe the Spirit of God was breathing upon those scriptures that morning. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, this, this, this one little passage, I'm sure he'd read it before, but all of a sudden that day it, God was on it. 
You ever read something a thousand times and all of a sudden you read it and the Holy Spirit just, this is for you right now? It's, it's cool when that happens. And I believe that's what was going on with Luther that day. And this changed his life. He realized there is nothing that I can do to earn God's salvation. It's his gift of his own grace. And so he launched the Protestant Reformation out of that point. And so the Protestants kind of revolted against the authority of the Pope, and instead they, they placed the Bible as the authority. The authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, they called it in Latin. Uh, now the, now the, the, the authority has moved from, from the central Pope to, to the Scriptures. And this was good. This was a good corrective on, on the abuses of the church because the Catholic Church at that time had really descended into something that was little more than a pagan religion. You know, in pagan religions, it's all about appeasing the gods with your sacrifice and your rituals and trying to get the gods on your side so that they'll bless your life and, and do this for you. And so that's what the Catholic Church had become at the time. And, and Luther was revolting against that. And in the Protestant Reformation, this idea of being saved by grace, the authority moved to the, from the Pope to the Bible. But the downside is that Protestantism very easily began to just be about ideas about God. About having right doctrine, right theology, uh, right stances on things. It became to be up here. It became a, a disembodied faith in many ways. Uh, we can still see this today. People fight over about beliefs all the time. And it's good to have good beliefs. But in revolting against works... Luther was basically saying, there's nothing you can do to earn the love of God. Okay, that's great. But, but for many, that meant, like, we don't have to do anything anymore. And I believe one of the greatest correctives to this disembodied faith actually came for somebody who came from a Lutheran country. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, back during the rise of the Nazis to power in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer really began to look at the, the, the Nazis that were coming to power in his day, and he saw how so many Christians in Germany were just embracing the Nazi power. You, you realize the Nazis came to power with the backing of most of the church in Germany. This ought to scare us, okay? <laughs> that Christianity can become so co-opted by patriotism and nationalism that we can become blind to the very gospel. It can happen. Okay, I don't think we, we, we need to say that we're above that. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer began to look around at, at the landscape of the culture of that day, and he saw how easily Christians were being co-opted by nationalism, patriotism, by Nazis, even though Nazis were doing things that were totally abhorrent to the faith. And I love, in, in, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, seminal work, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, I love the way he frames this, this idea of grace and works. He basically says that we don't learn about God and then follow Jesus. Rather, it is in following Jesus that we learn about God. You know what I'm saying? So it's not that you can just sit down with the Bible and you're going to figure out everything about God. No, it is in following Jesus and reading your Bible that you'll learn about who God is. It takes action. 
It's not a static thing of, I just need to get my ideas right. That's all that God wants. And unfortunately, this is what the evangelical church has done in our country. Just believe the right things about God and you're okay. And that's why we've ended up with a church in America that professes the right things but doesn't look like Jesus. Don't want anybody shout me down right now. I think this is why people are leaving the church left and right today is because we have a church that has right ideas, right doctrines, right theology, but doesn't have an embodied faith. It doesn't actually look like Jesus. And so various authors in the Bible actually uh, in the New Testament actually dealt with this idea. Uh, I put on, on the front of your program, Philippians 3, 12, the Apostle Paul says, not that I have been be- Not that I've become perfect yet. I have not yet won, but I am still running to capture the prize for which Jesus Christ captured me. That's action, right? (laughs) Paul's not just like, hey, you know, saved by grace. I'm just going to sit here, wait on Jesus, take me home. Right? He says, I'm running. I'm running. In other, in other areas, Paul would actually use the language of boxing. He uses a lot of athletic uh, imagery. You know, I'm, not, I'm not shadow boxing here. I'm, I'm disciplining my body. I'm taking this thing seriously in my everyday life. It actually affects my actual life. James put it this way in James 2.17. He said, faith without works is dead. Like the very evidence that you have faith is that you, you, your actual actions look different than other people. <laughs> or as the Apostle John would put it in 1 John, he says, If you claim that you love God but you hate your fellow man, you're deceived. You're deceived. You're, <laughs> you're walking in darkness. The very proof that you love God is that you actually love other people. That's the proof, your actions. The very proof that you have faith in God is that when you see somebody that doesn't have enough food or something to eat or clothing and you have resources to take care of it, is that you actually take care of it. That's what James says. (laughs) James put it this way. Somebody is hungry (laughs) and naked and they come to your door and you just say, oh, bless you. Be at peace. Go, Go be fed. That's awesome. God bless you. I love you. And you shut your door. He's like, that's not faith. (laughs) That's ignorance. (laughs) True faith in God, a true relationship with God, sees a hungry person and feeds them. Sees a naked person and clothes them. That's the evidence that you have faith. So is it faith or works? It's both. Now, see, we don't work to get from God. We work because of what God has given. I tell you, this last few days, I have seen some prominent Christian leaders in this country say some very hateful things about other groups of people. And I question, do you really... You really have faith in the same Jesus that the Bible talks about? (laughs) Are are you following that guy? Or are you following some God that just backs your own agenda? Because everything you say is so filled with fear and anger and hate. So 
it's faith and works. But the works that we're talking about here are a different sort of works than the works that we typically think of. Luther had it right. We are saved by grace. There, there's nothing we can do to earn God's, God's grace. And if you're here this morning and you've been trying to fight for God's approval, I just hope that you just get free from that today. I hope you have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that, just, that, that you, are, you know that you are loved by God and absolutely accepted by God, and there's nothing you can do to mess it up. Nothing. God loves you just as much on the day where you are praying and reading your Bible as he does when you're doing the worst sins in your life. There's nothing that can take that love away from you. Nothing that can separate you from that love. But <laughs> if we are going to experience transformation, and this is, this is really the call of discipleship, not that we would just have ideas about God that are right, but that we would actually embody those ideas. If we are to become people of love, if we are to become people of peace, people of hope, people that are filled with joy when everything else is coming down around us, if we are to become those kind of people that look like Jesus, then it will involve something uh, in our life of action. And there are actions that will be manifested because of that. We've been looking... For the past few weeks, at this series, we've been in the series, The Road to Recovery, and we've been looking at various things from the recovery movement that can help us in our spiritual journey. Uh, the guys who started AA uh, many years ago, uh, they, they were actually Christians, okay? So uh, it's, it's very much a, a, a Christian program. They've adapted it to where anybody can use it. You don't have to be a Christian. But I really believe that these principles were a gift of God. Are these the only ways to, to understand, uh, to experience transformation? No, but they have every way of Experiencing transformation has something kind of in common along these lines. The first three steps of the 12 steps are, are, are really about coming to an end of ourselves. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. These are the first three steps of AA, the 12 steps, what we talk about in Celebrate Recovery. And, and by the way, this isn't just for them poor alcoholics. And poor drug addicts, I'm glad they have something for them, those addicted people over there. We're all addicted people, okay? We are all in recovery from sin, okay? <laughs> all of us, every one of us. You may not admit it today. You're in denial. Uh, <laughs> but these first three steps are about losing confidence in ourselves. You ever, you ever get in that, that habit? I think we all do this. I don't know why. I guess it's something about the new year. Like, this year I'm going to be different, right? And I, I don't know. I guess I, it seemed like halfway through my 30s I finally gave up on, on New Year's Eve <laughs> resolutions. Like, at some point you're just like, ah. <laughs> you know, we come into the new year and we're like, I mean, Usually I'm a few pounds heavier than I was in, you know, September between Thanksgiving and Christmas parties. And, you know, by the time I get to, to, to New Year's Day, I just like, I don't even want to look at myself in the mirror. Like, you know, I just kind of avoid, like, steam the room up, just wipe up that top part where I can look at my head. <laughs> you know, so we'll get to January 1st and I'm like, this is the year. This is it. I'm going to start eating healthy. 
I'm going to exercise. I'm going to be that guy. And that decision, <laughs> that decision that I make uh, on, on, on New Year's Eve sometimes can get me three weeks down the road. Most of the time, it's more like three days. Like that, that, that emotion will, will only carry me so far. We come to an end of ourselves. We come to a place where we realize, I can't do this. I can't change myself. I remember it was about two years into my walk with God where I came to that place. I was like, God, I'm reading my Bible like crazy. I'm, at, I'm serving in the church. I'm doing all these things, and, and I'm not experiencing transformation. I just give up. And I felt like I was like, I was wondering when you were going to do that. I've <laughs> been waiting for you. So we have to give up on our own efforts. That's what the first three steps are about. It's just like, hey, I'm, I'm screwed up. I have finally realized there's a God. Mercy, Lord. <laughs> but the th- second three steps, step four through step six, are now about a different kind of work. We have maybe lived in ways where we tried to change ourselves, where we tried to impress God, where we tried to manipulate God to our own means, and now we've given all that up. Step four is we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I think Skip talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Step five, we admitted to God and to ourselves and to other human beings the exact nature of our wrongs. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever looked at the stuff beneath the surface and made an inventory and then actually tried to make some amends with people, admit to other people like, I'm a mess. If you've never done that, that can be helpful. And then step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character finally to a place. But see, these second three steps are really about a type of work. But it's a different kind of work, and it's what I would call stewardship, which is the title of this message, which if I was more on it, I would have a title slide today. But Stewardship. See, stewardship, the very word stewardship, is it's, it's about taking care of something that has been entrusted to you. It is about caring for something that is special to you, that has been given to you to take care of. I think three different ways of, or, or pictures that, that can help us with this understanding of, of what stewardship can look like, what the type of the, the paradox of grace and work. I want to give you three pictures. The first one would be a, a sailboat. I used this analogy when we started this series a month ago, but imagine that you're, you're going across a lake in a rowboat, and you're getting tired, and you're getting worn out, and you get about halfway across that lake, and it, all of a sudden it occurs to you that you're actually in a sailboat. <laughs> you're not in a boat that was meant to be rowed, and so you can keep on rowing and wear yourself out, and you'll just die out at sea. Or you can raise up a sail. Now, Alan, Judy, y'all have sailed before a lot. It requires a little work, right? You don't just raise up a sail and let the... Sailing's not like hot air ballooning. Hot air ballooning, the wind just carries you wherever. But in a sailboat, you actually have to maneuver the sail. You actually have to turn the rudder. There is work involved, but the power that propels you is not from the boat. Secondly, in marriage... I'm, I'm going to, in three weeks, I think, we're, we're coming up on our 18-year anniversary, me and Dina. And uh, 
you know, it, it, if, if you get married, it's not all about just that ceremony and getting that ring and making your vows in front of other people. A lot of people put so much effort into that day, and they forget about the rest of their life. That's kind of why we're doing this relate thing. Um, that that, that they, they, they think just about getting to the altar and how wonderful that day is going to be. But, you know, when I got this ring on my finger and said these vows, I I didn't keep acting like I'm trying to win my wife over. Now it's a matter of resting in that love and stewarding that love, right? Or the other extreme is you you don't just get the ring on your finger and realize, hey, this person's committed to me, so now I'm just going to go flirt with every woman I can because I got her. (laughs) Like both of those ways are wrong. What you do in a marriage is hopefully you can steward this love that you have to, to you, you stop doing things that you might have done before. So you can take care of it so that love can grow. The third illustration I would say would be a garden. We have any gardeners in here? I don't know, Ricky and Sharon, y'all are always coming up with something. I'm a failed gardener. Um, <laughs> Want to be gardeners? Uh, um, you know, if, if you just if you want to have a garden and you just throw a bunch of seed in your backyard, that's that's not going to produce anything. You might feed the birds, but if you really want to uh, have a garden, if you really want to experience the fruit of your labors, if you want to have vegetables out there, then you got to till up the soil. You got to pull out the weeds. Then you put those seeds in there, and you got to make sure there's enough water, but not too much water. That there's sun, but not too much sun. you got to make sure that there's no bugs that are biting the fruit, you know, e- eating the plants up. Now, that, that actual genetic process of life, do you know what's going on there? Can you control that? No. But you certainly can set up an environment that is hospitable to life. Right. So what is the work of gardening? The work of gardening is is just making sure you have prepared a space that is hospitable, hospitable to life. And if you've done all of that part, the process of life will will happen and you will get to experience that fruit. The, The apostle said the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control in there too. <laughs> he said those are the fruits that come from God's spirit. We can't manufacture those things. We can't manufacture love and joy and peace and patience. We, you, right? I know some of you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we can't manufacture those things, but we can get our heart into a place that is hospitable to what God wants to do. And our efforts of tilling the soil combined with the seed of God, the water of the Spirit, can bring forth fruit. Bring forth transformation. The thing is that what is going on is that we are adjusting the trajectory of our lives. See, the reason it's so hard for you to do things when you just have an emotional feeling like, I'm going to start eating well today. Well, part of the reason is you live in Louisiana. If I lived in Michigan, I'd be about 20 pounds lighter. 
But, but part of the reason that, that it's hard to just make a change in our life the moment we die, because we've got a whole life of acting that way. We, we've actually got a trajectory that we're on. And you can't just change things the moment that you want to. You think you can, but you can't. That change actually requires step-by-step behavior, step-by-step change that will eventually adjust that trajectory of your life where you head in a different way. You know, when Dina and I, uh, we, we were in debt pretty bad um, several years ago, and we wanted to get out of debt. And at first, it was a drag. If you've ever tried to get out of, out of debt, it's just it's a drag at first. You just feel like there's all these things you want to do, and you can't do them because you're paying off credit cards. And, you know, it's just, oh, I hated it. But after a few months of making those payments on those credit cards and paying off these things and doing without things that we wanted, it actually started to feel good. Have you ever felt that before? Like, like, like we're actually making progress here. And then after a couple of years of, of doing this, we actually got to where we paid off the credit, this credit card. And then we moved on to this credit card and then this bill and this bill. And finally, we got to a point where we were done except for the student loans. We'll have those paid off by the time my youngest child has graduated college. <laughs> but the point is that, that, that the process of it adjusted our trajectory. If somebody had come in at the beginning of our wanting to get out of debt and they just gave us a big pile of money and we got out of debt instantly, we'd have probably been back into debt pretty quickly. Because what we needed wasn't just an immediate (laughs) rescue. We needed to be formed in a way to where we become people who are not used to getting in debt. We needed to learn a new way of living that wasn't beyond our means. And so the process actually formed us as a couple. This is the thing with, with these efforts that we do. I've seen this in... In, in, in recovery programs, I've seen this in my own life. You know, the, the first time that I ever opened up my life and shared things with some other guys that I'd never shared with anybody else, that was probably about 13 years ago. And I remember being at this retreat, and, and I was honest with people for the first time in my life about things that I was ashamed of. And I remember when I did that the first time, it was like a cathartic release. Like, I just felt like, I'm totally free now. <laughs> it was amazing. And I, I see this happen in recovery. You know, people, the first time they've ever shared anything like that, they, they, they open up and, and it just, they, they, they feel like they're flying. But usually what happens is, you know, a few weeks down the road, you fall back into the same thing. You screw up again in the same way. And you realize that that cathartic release you had wasn't transformation. It was a part of transformation. But the transformation actually involves changing the context of your life. And so I want to close with a couple of things. If I can find them. I think... One of the biggest things that has to change 
we do have to come to a place of just admitting that we can't do this anymore, okay? You've got to go through those first three steps till you get to this part. We've got to come to an end of ourselves. If you, are just are, you know, if you find yourself today and you're just in the same place that you've been for the last 20 years, then, then maybe it's time to try something different, you know? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Like, this isn't working for you. <laughs> but I think one of the biggest changes that we can find is learning community Finding open, honest relationships with whom we can be ourselves. That's one of the biggest context changes in my life. If you are reading, I I don't care if you're reading the Bible all day, you're working the 12 steps by yourself, you're not going to experience ultimate transformation until you learn how to be with some other people. See, the 12 steps of AA, they don't work by yourself. I think the biggest thing that AA brought us is to, to, to learn how to do these things in community with each other. You show up, and you're with other people that are working on their lives, and there's something in that community that helps you. If you come to our Celebrate Recovery class here on, on Wednesday nights, it's, it's not terribly spectacular. No offense, Ricky. I mean... <laughs> mean, I mean, we worship, we have a talk, we get in small groups, and we talk to each other about our week. There's nothing, like, fancy about it. No, no smoke and lights. Um, yeah. We do have cookies and brownies. But the second half of, of, of each Celebrate Recovery session is just we break up in guys' groups and girls' groups, and we just sit down, and everybody gives an update on where they're at. How's your week? What's going on? And then we pray for each other. That's it. Sometimes it's amazing what God does. Sometimes it's just like, eh, regular week. But the discipline of showing up to be with other people that are taking their journey seriously, that are willing to open up about where they're at, what they're going through, whether it's drugs, alcohol, pornography, a compulsive spending, codependency, workaholism, whatever it is, when you are committed to be around other people where you can be yourself, be honest and say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, or this is what I had victory with this week. It's amazing. Changing that context in your life over time adjusts the trajectory of where you're going. So I just want to encourage you today. Um, to just take the grace of God that he's given you to, to put up your cell. <laughs> to pull up some weeds. But you don't do that on your own. You do that with other people. Maybe, maybe you haven't come to the recovery thing because you're like, ah, I'm not a drunk. Uh, not a fallen down drunk at least. Uh, not a drug addict. Hey, man, if you're just struggling with anything, depression, come on out and join us. Experience life with some other people. And if not here, just find some people. I got to tell you, every week, there's not a week that goes by in my life where I'm not having a a sit-down with somebody or a phone conversation with a friend who I'm being open and honest with. I, I grew up an only child, and I'm perfectly content being by myself. I don't mind going out to eat by myself or going to a movie by myself. I'm fine. I'm perfectly, like, that's okay. But I've realized over the years I have to... To, to have the spiritual discipline of community in my life if I'm going to experience Jesus.
in a way that changes me. All right, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I just want to close by singing a song that we, we did in worship a little while ago. And I just want this to be our prayer this morning that we just offer our lives again to the Lord. We surrender to God. And all I ask you to do this morning is uh, ask the Holy Spirit. You ask the Holy Spirit, God, what are you inviting me into right now? What is your invitation to me? Am I really ready for you to deal with every character defect in me? Or is I was like, nah, I'd rather, not, <laughs> I'd rather you not touch that. And if, and if, and if that's where I'm at, God, then, then maybe what else can you invite me into? How can I start moving towards that place? So let's ask the Lord that. Why don't you stand?